Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Earfirm Network. On War. Prerequisites of Victory. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earverm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode concerns the prerequisites of victory. But before we get to that, uh, I've got a few announcements, of course. Um, first off, at last uh, episode we had thanked our patrons, and now in a more physical form we're going to be sending new stickers. Normally we send them at the beginning of a new season, but for those of you keeping track, we've been on Klauswitz for going on a year now. And if you've been keeping track in the book, we're going to be doing this a while, you and I. So, there's going to be more than just one season's worth of stickers, which would be normal. So, uh, our lovely editor is already cooking some up, and you will be seeing those very soon. Next, the wargaming thing here in Montana, around this time of year, is normally on fire. Which is to say, it's normally fairly predictable in terms of it being dry and it being hot. This year we've been having an unseasonably wet time of it, and it always seems like the practices, like the practice on the weekend time that we have, is always when the poor weather is out and about. And yet when we are in the middle of the week, suddenly we've got weather that's like, oh man, why aren't we practicing in this? So it's just one of those perfect timing things. It doesn't mean that we're not going out and doing the thing. It's just, I don't know, it's always a frustration when the weather doesn't make up its mind. But... As our military theorists have often said, we have to make the best of what we can and just kind of take it easy in the rain. Uh, the league is going well. I've got some more games set up here in a moment. The bracketed stuff, I think, is starting here in a couple of weeks. So we'll actually get to measure our medal. I've been meta-chasing for the first time in, in my life doing this. Like, I've always been very studious. When it comes to be, being familiar with my codex, and what's going on with the updates, like the FAQs and whatnot, like that's that's never what I've not paid attention to. But in terms of like looking at other people's lists and kind of analyzing what's going well at tournaments, I'd always just sort of flown by the seat of my pants, as it were. Kind of test out what I thought would be good against my, my small group of gaming friends and kind of came to some conclusions on my own. Well, with the Knights, I realized, like I was I was working on getting to this place anyways. But it just so happened that once I got to the place where um, I, I, I was looking at, of course, the lists and everything, because I was struggling, still am, I'm, I'm still trying to find that winning strategy with the Knights. But the tournaments that I've seen up, up to date when this was recorded, the winning Knights lists, or the ones that have placed, are always, almost always, uh, three Castoris class, which is the medium-sized Knights. And I was running a Dominus class, like one Castorus and the rest Armagers. But the three Castorus and four Armagers seems to be one of the better builds, 
in terms of just flexibility and whatnot. So I'm going to be going after some of that and I'll be letting you know how it works. On exciting news, uh, two friends of mine from the uh, Midwest, from over there in Avalon, were in town, Desi and Zulu. Zulu was a, a previous member, a student at the uh, Gladiator Academy, and Desi is one of my apprentices. So it was, and, and they're both dear friends in addition to both those things. So it was lovely seeing both of them and being included in their little vacation. Uh, and I also got some excellent interviews. So uh, you'll be hearing from one of them on this particular episode and the other on the next episode. Because, uh, yeah, they were kind enough to, to do that with me. Yeah, I think I've, I've yammered on uh, about that stuff long enough. Uh, let's you and I get into this conversation about the prerequisites of victory. As you can probably imagine, there are a lot of things that go into victory, from equipment and supply to the training of the people involved and the quality of the officers. There are a multitude of various things that go into determining whether or not an army can achieve victory. But in terms of what we're speaking about today, Clausewitz is rather specific about the uh, things that we need in order to achieve that victory. And what I've kind of sussed out here is that perseverance, superior numbers, and surprise are chief among these. So let's let's kind of go through these and discuss them one at a time. Of perseverance, Clausewitz writes, in war, more than anywhere, things happen differently than expected. An oft quoted uh, uh, phrase on this show is the uh, plan never survives first encounter with the enemy. And this is kind of Clausewitz's similar idea on that matter. We never truly know what's going on in our opponent's head. We never truly know what you know, sly trick they might pull, something we may not expect. Thinking that we know everything, thinking that we purely understand what our opponent is doing, that is a sort of hubris. But an understanding that we, we don't, and that we need to learn to react to whatever they're going to do, well, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's how we keep winning. Uh, not expecting to win all the time, but working to win. And so we have, to be, we have to be prepared for this, is what Clausewitz is saying. This perseverance isn't just being able to overcome the hardships, which is huge, or being able to overcome the stress of the fighting itself, which is also huge. But the perseverance that he's speaking of here is for the commander, and it is to weather everything else that comes into view here. Because you think about commanders back in the way when everything was a whirlpool of true and false information. It was hard to tell what was which. You had conflicting reports coming in from different areas. You had spies, of course, that were working and maybe spreading rumors and whatnot. It was very chaotic. Still is rather chaotic, trying to make sure that you understand false and true information. That's why there's that whole joke about military intelligence, right? It's not necessarily because the branch itself is bad, but because of the, the very material it deals with is difficult to pin down. So a commander has to be able to sift through this. Should have a very good staff and a good chief of staff to help them look for things that are important and perhaps brush the other things off. But even they miss things. But it's important. It's important to review as much as we can because even if we do have a very good plan, and even if, even if it was the perfect plan, it cannot account for human error, right? 
there's always going to be mistakes. Mistakes that are caused out of fear. You know, somebody is uh, approaching the line for the first time, or they're, uh, they're worried, again, it's battle. They're probably worried about the battle. And perhaps their, their hands aren't moving as much as they should, or you know, they're, they're distracted by something else. Perhaps it's the same for us. Perhaps we're getting up there and we have anxiety about facing down an opponent for the first time. Perhaps we're, we're fighting somebody larger than ourselves or more skilled than ourselves. Perhaps somebody who's been in the game longer than we have. And to continue pressing forward in these times, that is perseverance. So keeping a hold of ourselves, keeping a hold of our minds and our steady courage, we can prevent ourselves from making mistakes that are based in fear. Negligence is another large cause of mistakes. How many times has a soldier been uh, kind of hobbled in combat because they didn't clean their weapon well enough? You know, the, it, it didn't work correctly, or they didn't sharpen their sword, or whatever the, that may be. Perhaps they weren't tending to the uh, maintenance of a saddle, or of a wagon, or whatever, like whatever there could be to neglect in duty. Perhaps it was not well done. And now the mistake comes, not because we don't know how to use the gear, but because the gear was not well tended to. If we neglect our bodies, if we do not exercise ourselves and stretch ourselves and try to make sure that even during times of, of lows, off-season, COVID seasons, that we are able to kind of keep that perseverance up because mistakes can ma be made if we neglect. I have a tennis elbow acting up right now because I neglected certain exercises and then tried to fight the way that I used to. Body remembers how to do it, doesn't have the hardware to do so anymore. So that negligence was a mistake, a mistake that we can correct, a mistake that I am seeking to correct. Hastiness also causes quite a few mistakes. How, how often have any of us tried to rush through attacks and just bungled it? <laughs> Absolutely just dropped it on the floor. How many of us have been trying to do a good job so fervently that we end up doing a poor job instead? Well, this, this, these mistakes caused by hastiness Perseverance lets us know the pace that we should go at. Perseverance keeps our hands steady and says slower is faster. I mean, to an extent, obviously. There, there is a limit to that particular proverb. But through understanding that hastiness is not the same thing as celerity. Going quickly is not being hasty. So we can avoid those mistakes. And then you just have straight up disobeying orders, right? You've given the orders. You think that your wing or your flank or your center is going to do what it's supposed to do, and then the commander just does what they want to do. And that doesn't necessarily happen in Warhammer or, or similar games to that, but in terms of uh, physical wargaming, I know it has. There'll be a plan, that plan will be communicated, and then somebody de decides to play cowboy. Somebody decides to go rogue. And this causes a mistake because it causes a hitch in the rest of the plan, right? And so we're looking for high courage and stability. These are two things that are required for this perseverance. And even if we were not born with them, we can learn them. We can teach ourselves to have high courage. And courage isn't an absence of fear. It is standing with one's chest high in the face of fear. And that's how we keep from making those mistakes. And then stability. Stability helps us make sure that we're not too hasty. 
We're not going too slow or too fast. We're doing exactly what needs to be done. So we're trying to be courageous and stable, of course. Understanding that only an immense force of will overcomes everything that comes to us, especially from war. War gaming is stressful in and of itself, especially if you're at a tournament and you're on your feet for hours. If you go to an event with Belagarth and you're in the sun for hours, swinging and being swung at, an immense force of will is needed to overcome the exertion of what we're doing, the pains, the privation, which the privation, not so much. Normally we eat plenty and we have plenty to drink and food and, and, and blankets and all that sort of thing. So the privation, eh, not so much. But we certainly have exertion and pains that we have to work through. So understanding how to overcome these things, that is the heart of perseverance, which is the first prerequisite of victory. The second factor that contributes to victory in a very direct way are superior numbers. We've talked a lot about the fact that just because one army is larger than another does not guarantee victory for the smaller army. But all things equal, let's say marching at each other with equal strength, not like numbers as in like fewer space marines or uh, you know that to like Imperial Guard or whatever, but we're just talking sheer bodies on the field. We're going to take away every other modifier. Training, we're going to take away equipment, we're going to take away all the other stuff except just sheer numbers. And it would be strange to think about how many times sheer numbers just carry the day, but they do. They do. Not everybody's a brilliant commander, and even brilliant commanders don't necessarily have their plans go well. So the numbers, the ability to just have people there, that is huge. But it comes at a cost, and it comes with certain considerations, because obviously we're trying for superior numbers like that. Nobody's going to not do that, right? And our strategy, the whole point of strategy and how that interacts with, you know, these, these, this numeric superiority is that strategy is trying to fix the point where, when, and with what numbers the battle will take place. This was the genius of Frederick. He could go up against a larger force because of, say with me now, local numeric superiority. He was able to keep his force bigger than his opponent's force and just chew down the line break continuity. And that's something that I've seen the best forces do. When you're, when you're dealing with uh, people who are in smaller groups, they are going to also pick places where they're going to have the superiority. They may not be the largest force on the field, but they're finding that place where they can be and where they can turn the battle to their favor. So we're, if we're talking about tactics, right? Tactics, we're here to fight the battle. And strategy makes use of those results. So very much physical wargaming is a lot about tactics. And when we've talked before, tactics is how far you can shout. If I can shout to the left, shout to the right, shout ahead. Within that bubble are tactics. Outside of that, I think that's still <laughs> considered tactics, depending on who you talk to. But all the way above that, all the way above that is strategy. Those are the folks pushing the little figures around on the table. Us risk players, oftentimes 40k players as well. And we're trying to make use of whatever has occurred. You know, if we're pushing forward on one side and we do well, we're able to push our enemy off an objective, capitalizing on that, making sure that we are aware of what's happening and using the result of that small skirmish as strategy. Even looking at the result of us and being like, okay, I'm going to lose over here, but if I keep my people there, I can delay the advance 
and get ready to you know, like make a defense behind that so I can be prepared. Well, that is a loss, right? But a loss that is contributing to the strategy itself. And this is important to remember when we're looking at these superior numbers, they're going to interact differently when we're dealing with strategy and with tactics. Now remember, setting aside all modifiers, numbies, numbers carry victory. You've just got more shots, you've got more people. Just, it, it seems to be good. However, we're going we're gonna to do an addendum here in a second. But what we're talking about here, of course, is the greatest number brought to bear at a, at a decisive point. Obviously, a large army can help you do this in a more broad fashion. But we can also do it in a smaller fashion if we're maneuvering correctly. There's three different ways that we can use these superior numbers to our advantage and make sure that they stay advantageous to us. The first one is that we need to enter the field with the greatest number possible. Now, this is not easy. It's simple. It's a simple idea. Take to the field with the greatest number we can, but it's not necessarily easy. It's easy for those of us that play 40k, you know, I can, I can enter the field and I have the dudes exactly that I want. But I, I think also here, one of the things that TF has said a couple of different times is boys before toys. And the idea here is that instead of upgrading all of your, your people to be extra, extra special, you put more on the field and it makes sense. You know, it's, it's more bodies. And even, even if you don't have like this super buffed out unit, we still have the ability to go forth and take objectives. So boys before toys is a lot like what this is saying too. We're trying to bring the greatest number of our troops to bear. And when we're dealing with Belagarth or similar wargaming things, any unit leader will agree with me when I say that getting your people on the field can be a chore sometimes. And it, it, it is also just due to, to regular wear and tear. You know, people might be laid up, you know, may have gotten themselves hurt, or may have stayed up too late, or whatever the case may be. Certain people may take longer to get to the field than others. Even in very well-regimented units, this can be an issue. And so making sure that we can enter the field with the greatest number of troops possible is important. The second one is the proper size of the overall army. This is going to be in slight contradiction to the first part, but we're going to kind of talk through that. Because Klauswitz likes to do this, and he doesn't really slow down and talk about it at the time. He'll talk about it later, but at the time you're like, dude, this doesn't make sense. Because here he says, proper size of the army, if it's too large, it's ungainly and burdensome. Think back to when we were talking about uh, the battle of the battle of Honshut that we talked about several episodes ago, where you had uh, the general who was coming up and he made this massive front, this massive ungainly front, and he was unable to keep track of where his troops were, what they were doing, and how they were supporting one another. And this has happened in several of the battles that we've talked about, mostly because the commanders were green and the troops were very green, and so that whole knowing what to do and how to do it may not have been super there, but the idea is that we make sure that we're taking a number of people within our certain group that we can control, that we can keep track of, and make sure we know where they are. And we, there's other things involved in this, and actually in the next episode we're going to talk a little bit more about size of the army and how to, how to kind of deal with that. It's, it's going to be a good one. And then the third one is, sometimes not all forces are brought to bear at the same time. Now, in terms of strategy, they are. We push our things over there, and they, they kind of become 
what they are, but the, this local numeric superiority, of course, helps us in, in many ways, and it can, it can kind of be elongated. So let me back up and use an example. Let's say you have a thousand men and I have a thousand men. One of the things that Clausewitz argues is that if you come in and you fight me with a thousand and I fight you with 500, we're going to have similarly, similarly proportioned losses, right? And eventually I'm going to have to withdraw with my 500 and you're going to still have, let's say 800, right? We've gotten you down to 800 men and I've dropped down to two or something along those lines. Well, now I bring back 500 more, right? Because they were behind. And even though you may have more than me, you've suffered proportionally more losses at this point, and my troops are fresh. Okay, so this ability to, like, do damage and then come back and deal more is kind of what he's talking about here. Now, in a lot of the games that we play, doing this ourselves isn't necessarily a good idea. I find in, like, 40k, for instance, that we want to bring our strength to bear immediately. And that there are some, some cases that waves are nice, but, I, like, I've seen it, like, with the Blood Angels. Blood Angels need to be played very well in order so that it's not just like a staggered arrival. You know, have got the one people who are arriving and they're getting mowed down. Next force arrives, they're getting mowed down. But that's also an imbalance. You've got a melee army versus shooting army considerably. So this is something to think about. I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with Clausewitz all the time. I think in certain situations, he's very correct here. That making sure that we're kind of coming in with fresh troops and using them to batter an already bloodied enemy that's smart. That's smart. But we can't do it to our detriment because if we send out those first troops and they get decimated, just gone with no real effort from our enemy, well, now we're left at a very severe numeric disadvantage, right? And the whole time we're looking for the maneuver. And, and to get this local numeric superiority, kind of coming back to that idea, there's a lot that's required. You know, you have to have energy in forced marches and boldness of the sudden attack. It's not enough to want to be someplace. It's not enough to think, oh, we can go over there. You have to get there first. And I've seen it happen. When you have the more elite units moving across the field, they hit hard. You know, they move fast with determination. And when they do, they come in, they hit a, a decisive point quickly with a sudden attack, a bold sudden attack, and are able to break their enemies, at least concentration, distract them, have to make them form up again. Doesn't always just annihilate them, but it certainly gets you close. So there's energy involved there. It's not just knowing that this is a good idea, going and getting this, this appear. It's, it's a good, it's a nice thing to say. I say it a lot. But the requirements of actually getting there, whether it's an advance role or just a, a rapid advance of our actual feet, that's important to maintain that. So when we're talking about superior numbers, we can be talking about the overall size of the army, even though super large armies can be ungainly and kind of hard to find food for and all that sort of thing. But the more important thing, of course, is local numeric superiority, which we've talked about ad nauseum. <laughs> so we've got perseverance, right? This ability to push through the things that are inevitable in war or wargaming, which is things aren't going to go the way that we want them to. We are going to have to come up with a different plan, with a, a different way of approaching the situation. And then we're going to have to have the courage to see it through. You know, to not to not let being on the back foot. Again, these these games that I played against Lee and Soren, I tried. I tried the whole time because I knew that if I started to like lose courage, if I started to back off, any opportunity of winning was going to slip right by me. So we have to make sure that we're, you know, 
being perseverant. That's not a word. That we, mm, <laughs> that we have perseverance. Let's go with that. And then, of course, like we just discussed, superior numbers. In addition to these two things, surprise is one of the ultimate things that we can have. Deceit, lying, it's, it's the first thing. Uh, truth is the first casualty of war. And when we're dealing with this sort of deceit, when we're dealing with this sort of this lying, it's not necessarily a dishonorable thing, but it's disguising your intentions from your opponent, right? You know, if you're, if you're wanting to hit them in the side, you look at their shoulder. And then you hit them in the side because they're distracted. Or if we're, you know, on the board, we're trying to, like, go in a direction that, you know, it may be obvious to our opponent, but perhaps we're trying to approach it in a way that can surprise, not just with the dice. But without the surprise element, without the ability to um, fix our opponent like this, we lose the ability of determining the when and the where and the who of the battle. That's not within our control anymore. Because if we have the surprise, if we are to prepare ourselves and our opponent does not, then we are able to capitalize on these things. We can have local numeric superiority. We can maneuver very quickly to another position. But if our opponent is entirely aware, if we've, if we've telegraphed what we're doing or told them what we're doing, then the surprise is gone. And we've just come back to just numbers, just two larger forces just duking it out. And when surprise is used very well, we can, you can break courage and cause confusion in the enemy. And we're not uh, you know, specifically talking about like the, the attack, like the tactical attack, but like such things as you know, the distribution of forces. You know, you've got all these folks on the, on the left side, on the eve before the battle. And then that night, forced march, the entire left side switches and goes wide right. And so in the morning, instead of them facing the uh, army that they thought they were directly in front of them, suddenly they're facing an army at an oblique, right? And this, this uh, distribution of forces may change the course of that battle. Maybe that lets us get that local numeric superiority that we need. That surprise, the drop on the enemy there. Perhaps they move in a direction that is disadvantageous to them, right? So again, it's not just of the attack. We can, of course, we want to attack with surprise there as well, but attacking with surprise in strategy and, and using that to maneuver our opponent into a corner. Well, that's excellent. And again, like before, secrecy and rapidity are the crucial factors. We have to move quickly. Otherwise, the opponent will know what we're doing and we got to be secret about it. Again, if I'm sitting here being like, man, if you do this, I'm going to play this stratagem. If you do this, I'm going to play this stratagem. You know, that may be good conversation, but if my opponent is smart, they're going to go, okay, well, this is the way that I can get around that. We don't want to, we don't want to like table talk ourselves into a, into a loss here. So secrecy is huge. That's a problem sometimes on the Belagarth field, because it is all, it is very common for a group to have like a, two or three people that are calling out orders. But if suddenly everybody's like, hey, go left, go left, go left. If somebody's paying attention to that, they'll be like, oh, hey, you know, these folks are going left and they can adjust the line accordingly. Secrecy. And the further we are from the, from the small scale, from like the tactical thing, the more this stuff begins to resemble policy as well. How are we going to do things? How are we going to, to carry out these particular orders? Of course, again, that's, that's at the, the tall side. On the small side, we're tr just trying to move fast. And, but the, the, the thing is the surprises on the small scale, while they are awesome for wargaming, in a history setting, they rarely actually do what we'd want them to do. 
These surprises on the small scale are, they make for great battle commentary. They make for great situations that are fun to talk about. What they don't do is actually usually, again, there's, there's times that they absolutely have. But normally this surprise coming at the strategic level is the one that bumbles the opponent into giving us the victory. Which is the idea here. We're kind of using the enemy to fall on their own sword here. But for the surprise to actually get pulled off, it's not just within our skill. Remember, the plan falls apart the first time it meets the enemy. And that includes planning for a surprise. So there are other favorable circumstances that kind of need to be in place. Good fortune, for instance, even if we move for a surprise, could be that the enemy does the same thing. They maneuver their forces to a surprise, and there we are facing each other front to front again. I sidestep, you sidestep. Suddenly we're in the same position as we were, just rotated 90 degrees. So favorable circumstances, waiting for somebody to stumble, waiting for a force to become confused, for rain if we're prepared for it. These other circumstances are important to actually pulling a surprise off. It doesn't always work. And like I said, we the wrong result can backfire. Like if we overextend ourselves, if it's like, okay, this is kind of a Hail Mary. For instance, one of the things I've been doing with my knights, because I, you know, it seems, so, and I've been refining it, is doing a nice charge, right? At this point, I can charge a gallant and two armagers across the field and still uh, advance them across the field and still be able to charge, which is awesome if I get them into my opponent's lines and begin wreaking havoc on turn one, just outstanding, if I can pull it off. If those rolls are short, then I'm left out in the middle of nowhere and I've got all my opponent's guns facing down on me. That's a hard place to be. So that surprise of trying to move across the field and seize my opponent suddenly, if it doesn't work, I am in a very bad position. And it's backfired massively. And my opponent only has to use my mistake in order to, to achieve victory. I was out in the middle of nowhere. I hadn't done what I needed to do. And Soren just blew me apart. He played well. I'm not going to take away from that. But I also walked in and made a mistake that was exceptionally costly. And I could not take it back. I'd lost the element of surprise. And as we were saying before, this mutual surprise, let's say I do something you didn't expect and you did something I didn't expect, the one who wins is the one who hits the nail on the head. Is able to do their thing better, basically. And when we're dealing with opening these surprises, trying to find them, intimidation is great. If we can intimidate our opponent, make them fearful, right, then they begin to make mistakes. And through this intimidation, it gives us more opportunities. If my opponent is too afraid of me or too hesitant to throw a shot, well, then I have my pick. They might even close their eyes when you start to throw a shot. They might wince. Oh, my God, bread and butter right there. You can take whatever pick you want. So intimidation is huge. And these things, the, the surprise element also feeds into stratagems. And this kind of is the same as what we talk about with 40K, right? The, the cards or the the points that we pay to be able to do a stratagem, some sort of alteration to our rules that makes us more powerful or faster or you know, soak shots better, whatever, whatever it's doing. But it's kind of the same thing here. A stratagem implies a concealed attention, deceit. It's the same thing with ours. It's not necessarily a rule that is active at the time. It's something that we can say, ah, you were expecting this from this model, but stratagem, it can do this. Kind of the same idea here. We're using, we have got something in the chamber. We've got a plan, but it's secret until whatever it is, the, the situation presents itself. 
There's also like we were when we were saying that we if we overcommit, right? We open ourselves up for like a reverse push. It backfires on us because we've lost the element of surprise and actually given our opponent a distinct advantage. Our stratagems should seek to do the opposite. Should seek to give like make our opponent give us uh, an advantage. They don't know about the stratagem, right? If my opponent is setting up their front line and they don't know that I can full tilt and use the Aaron's abilities to make two um, armagers into bondsmen and drive them across the field and be able to charge. You, know, you combine that full tilt with Master of the Joust from Griffith, you've got some good stuff coming across there. And if they're not prepared for that, then they've already committed the first error. They've set their troops forward within range, as close as they can be to mine. And that's a mistake if they're not prepared for this to occur. And at the root of every surprise, every attempted surprise that occurs, a stratagem is there. The idea of trying to use that surprise for a reason. It's not just, ah, boo, okay, I'm done. Have a good day. No, the surprise is there because we want to achieve something. That we're, even if it's just the destruction or disruption of our opponent's army, clearing out a, a swath of land, whatever the case may be, strat stratagems, surprise, are interconnected. And they require subtlety. As we've been talking about this entire section, trying to make sure that we are concealing our intention from our opponent while still maintaining that perseverance, that, that will to carry it forward through stratagems and using our numbers superior for us. Even if we have less numbers than our opponent, we can manipulate the field through surprise in order to get that local numeric superiority that makes any battle go so much smoother in our favor. So now that we've talked about the prerequisites of victory, perseverance, superior numbers, surprise, and with it stratagems, let's now have a conversation about how these things uh, kind of play out in Belagarth by talking to my dear apprentice, Desi. Here to talk with us on this episode about the prerequisites of victory is my long-lost apprentice from the East, Desi. Desi, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation to come on the show. Thanks so much. Yeah, we are super happy to be here. Excited to talk. Well, outstanding. Well, I'm, I'm super happy to have you. And, uh, you know, today we've got some, some cool stuff to talk about. But before we get to that, uh, let's talk to the listeners about your pedigree a little bit. Like what kind of, what's your wargaming experience? Yeah, so I started out like a lot of us did in high school. Uh, we were playing D&D &D, and then we said, can we do this in real life? Uh, and so we made nonsense out of PVC and pool noodles and electric tape and all that terrible stuff. Uh, and then um, I actually went to high school in Bloomington Normal uh, and Morpheus was visiting us a lot um, because obviously Wolfpack of the High Plains is there. So in about 2013, I transitioned into Bellegarth um, through Wolfpack of the High Plains through Morpheus. I owe a lot of who I am as a fighter today to uh, Sir Morpheus of Wolfpack. After that, I um, started a realm, well, restarted a realm over in Charleston, Illinois, which was home to Kazakh Doom. Um, I've moved around quite a bit, but now I'm settled into Avalon mm -hmm. uh, out of Akron, Ohio. Right on. Well, it sounds like you've had a pretty decent uh, tour of duty 
as it were. With and and I, I find that people who have been to multiple realms have had a, a very enriching experience when it comes to style and technique and and all that sort of thing. To get exposed to a lot of different folks. Absolutely. Uh, the time that I spent in Numenor, gosh, a couple of years ago before I moved to Ohio, it's really, really beneficial for me just because of the level of skill that's out there, uh, and really the range of teachers and of skill. So like you get an opportunity to practice with somebody who's maybe, you know, one, two, three years into the game. Mm -hmm. Um, but you also get to move further down the line and get your boat whooped by people who've been doing this longer than you've been alive. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's always it. My, my students definitely know what that feels like. And it's, it's strange that I've gotten to that point and I'm sure that those nights kind of feel the same. We all complain about being old. Um, but uh, apart from what realms you've been a part of, let's talk about units. Um, you're, you're a part of the, the cousinhood, as it were. Absolutely. <laughs> triad. Go triad. Uh, I am a member of the Brotherhood of the Falcon. Mm-hmm. Very, very proud. Um, gosh, when did I get sashed? Oh, it was at Piper's wedding. Why did Piper get married? Oh, it's been a couple of years now. Word. So, I mean, you, you've definitely been around, uh, and I think you were kind of associated with the unit before that, too. It wasn't, this wasn't your first rodeo with the BOF. Yeah, absolutely. So when I started out, obviously, we're all sampler platter. Um, I hung around with a couple of folks, and then eventually I uh, was hanging out with Hellhammer quite a bit. Um, and after a while, we kind of decided that was not, it wasn't the right fit, and I kind of moved on um, to the Brotherhood, so. Nice. And I, we talk about the Brotherhood a lot on this show because I find that they are a very good example for a lot of different um, well, concepts that we're talking about, especially when you're dealing with numbers of folks who are attempting to accomplish something. And the Brotherhood half that. It's, it's one of the things that is a, is a huge boon for y'all is the places where you have a presence, you have a presence, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we've got, we're a big unit. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm assuming that it's difficult to get that unit all in one place at the same time, yeah? Well, yeah, anybody knows. Um, We do make an effort to try and plan for a big push where we're all going to, you know, where we're all going to make the effort to go to this Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Um, In the past, we've done like rags, we've done chaos wars. um, Yeah, we've done a couple of those, but it is, it is a little challenging. We have some of our... We kind of call them the Brotherhood Hubs. We've got, you know, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, Avalon, of course, Old Avalon, um, even Champaign-Urbana, Numenor, mm-hmm. and Wolfpack uh, used to be a little bit more. We've got we've got some more retired folks out there who are focusing on family and less on sword fighting. But um, and then of course even out here, Idaho, mm-hmm. Missoula, they they have good uh, Brotherhood energy too. Absolutely, and it's it's interesting how the energy, like you say, is different from one side of the country to the other because it's all one brotherhood. But the the recruits from this area of the world are a little bit different than the, the ones... The flavor of it changes. Yeah. It's all the yeah. same brotherhood that mm-hmm. you get. Brotherhood classic PBR and then you get ultra PBR or whatever. So when you do assemble in those numbers, because you are all so disparate, because you come from a lot of different places, how is it that you can take those styles, those lessons, and put them into one larger cohesive whole? A lot of it stems from just just the unit itself, just the idea that we kind of all band behind, which is that of brotherhood and strength through unity, and I'll die with my brothers and I'll fight with my brothers. So we're all very... <laughs> it's kind of hive mind, honestly. Mm-hmm. You join this thing because you really believe in it, and you just kind of start to feel and think the same, and 
it's, we really try hard to make sure that we are cohesive together as a unit, despite the fact that we are maybe geographically displaced from one another. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we've done drills before. We're very, um, active as far as training, making sure that we're working with our brothers, our pledges, those who are hoping to get a bird someday, uh, making sure that they fit in with us, not only like on, on the field in a fighting sort of sense, but in a, in a family sort of way too, just kind of like anybody would in any kind of unit. It's not, it's not really different. It's not a game changer by any means. It's sure. just foundational, but. I'm trying to make sure people are, like you said, good fits. Absolutely. Everybody's going to get along and it's going to be a healthy situation, not just for the unit, but for the other individual Mm -hmm. as well. Well, it sounds to me like you guys kind of have a leg up when it comes to morale because you already have this brotherhood coming into it and this idea that's, that's pretty cleaved to pretty tightly. And so that I think would definitely make morale higher as a general rule than some other units perhaps coming together that don't have that feeling of, you know, strength through unity. Right. Yeah. I think that, what I found from seeing different units and kind of observing different units is that some people are like, Oh, you don't have to like your unit mates. And I, you don't, but there are some brothers that I might butt heads with, but at the end of the day, that's my brother. I'm going to defend him to the death. And even if we butt heads, I'm, I'm going to learn something out of it. Hmm. No. And that's, that's a, like you say, it contributes to that cohesion and it makes the perfect perseverance. A little a perseverance, I like English, a lot easier, right? Because if you, if you like the person standing next to you in the trench, if you have that feeling of camaraderie, it definitely, there's a lot of stuff that, a lot of stresses that come on the field. We're not, even, even normal war aside, like, which is a whole new level of stress, but being there, like doing this activity with people constantly and, and being under, you got reds coming at you, you've got the arrows coming at you and there is, there is a, a danger of physical harm and there's, there's certainly that, that feeling that comes with it. So knowing that the person beside you has your back as you have theirs, mm-hmm. well, that kind of trust, I think it definitely buoys the ability of everybody there. I think it's trust that's hard to come by. Absolutely. Um, and it, it does make me feel better anytime that I've got a brother nearby me. It's like a morale. It is like a morale boost. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I play a lot of Civilization Five, and that you 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 can upgrade them if they get enough XP, mm-hmm. and they do extra damage if they've got a buddy nearby. And I think that's kind of kind of what the Brotherhood is. We'll do extra damage if there's more than one of us. We'll do enough if there's one of us, but more look than out, one. yeah, look out. Starts to um, multiply exponentially. <laughs> I dig it. Well, and and there's something. There's something to be said for superior numbers, too. I know that the Brotherhood, because, like, the, the EBF is smaller than the Brotherhood, and the Dark Angel is smaller than the EBF. And it's not that the Brotherhood need to rely on numbers. Like, a lot of very skilled fighters, some of the most skilled fighters I know, are Brotherhood. But the other theory applied there is also the superiority of number, this ability to swamp the opponent with this quality. And... How, how do you organize that? Because some, I've seen Brotherhood, especially out here in the West, where there'll be like maybe 10 Brotherhood on the field. And they're able to very clearly communicate amongst themselves. And they're one well-oiled unit being able to move this direction and that with relatively no like cajoling, right? But then I've gone to the East, like Ockfest, 
mm-hmm. or Beltane or something. You've just got this. Well, not this Beltane. They were actually smaller than us. <laughs> this Beltane. Yeah, we were teeny tiny for Beltane, unfortunately, this year. But like Ockfest, last Ockfest I was at, there were so many Brotherhood, mm-hmm. like from from wall to wall to wall, like just. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I, and like I saw them a little bit on the field, but I was spending most of my time with the DA. But I was constantly thinking, how do you make those numbers work at that? At that level, like you still have the numbers, which you think theoretically would come in handy, but when you're actually trying to apply those on the field and move that ungainly force back and forth, it's difficult to make sure everybody's on the same page, and that is what makes us the fact that we kind of have a little hive mind very, very beneficial on our end. Um, Communication is definitely one of the largest parts of being within this unit. Is you have to understand, especially how to communicate out on the field. we also do a really good job of deferring to the judgment of who who sees the right picture, who sees what we need to see. Um, so a lot of times we'll defer to a veteran fighter or a lieutenant or somebody like that um, to drive the bus and kind of let us know what we're doing. And when we're in such a large group like that, and maybe you're on one side of the herd of BOF and you can't hear quite what the other or what your lieutenant's saying. Your brothers are going to tell you what's mm. up, or we're going to pick you up and we're going to drag you. And that's one thing about last Ockfest that really made me proud to be in the Brotherhood is um, it rained. Goodness, it rained the last mm. one, and so obviously I arched quite a lot, um, and I I don't do it when it's raining like when we're playing in the mud. But I got to clock in and I got to get to work. So I'm going to go sword and board. And I, I'm i not the most talented sword and board. And especially when you have such large groups of people out, like at Oktoberfest. Um, so I got leg, right? I got leg by a spear. And my unit's moving on. And I'm like, all right, guys, I'll be here when you get back. <laughs> but no, sure enough, Thorn grabs me by my, sh- by, my, uh, by my scruff and picks me up and hauls me around to the next place. <laughs> and... Drops me down in the mud, and but I'm still I'm still with the group, and that was a nice reminder of why 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 I found the brotherhood to be my home. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that with that superiority, it's good to know that they look after. But that also begs the question of when you're dealing with those large numbers, how are you able to keep track of everybody like that, and and not let that superior of numbers, like because it makes you a target. Obviously, like when we were in the Urukai and they first started off here in the West, they were large, loud, and new. Mm-hmm. And nobody wanted anybody large, loud, and new to win. And so it was constantly, even though the Urukai were often the largest force on the field, they would just get picked at. Picked at all over the place by various units until there was nothing left to be able to bring to bear against a proper unit. How is it that the Brotherhood is able, because I've, I've watched y'all preserve that unit coherency. We definitely are about, and this ties into your, your stratagem, right? Like, mm-hmm. right place, right time. Sure. Do I want to go up against Halster Goth when they have, gosh, 150 people standing in front of me? And I could be better than a lot of them. You know, my unit could be technically superior, but when there's so many of them, there's no, there's no way when you can't even, don't know which way is up. Right. Well, numbers count for something. Mm-hmm. Again, in this section, Clausewitz says when we're dealing, at least when we're dealing with this part of the conceptualization of battle and war, we need to take away all other considerations, moral considerations, uh, privation, fatigue, all that sort of thing, and simply look at the numbers. 
That's a, one of the basic ways to look at it. Who's got the numbers? And then there's a bunch of other things that come into it, but numbers really do count if you outnumber them two to one, 10 to one. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter the skill unless you can like narrow the field, right? Like at Thermopylae, they were able to like narrow the field and like the Persians numbers were one of their big attributes mm -hmm. but because they had to fight in this narrow area they weren't able to bring those numbers to well, bear because it breaks it down into a, a lot smaller fights sure multiple many 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 small fights mm -hmm. versus one gigantic one so one thing that the brotherhood does is we pick and choose where we're going um we are a strong unit we're full of talented fighters but we are not foolish mm. by any means um there's no leroy jenkinsing that that stuff but numbers don't count for anything if you squander them. Which is which is kind of the idea, which was what you were saying. Like, keep it together. Pick where you want to attack. Absolutely. And make sure that you're applying. Because, again, like, and even if it's not the largest force on the field, even if the Brotherhood does have a smaller force on the field, there's still the idea of looking for that, that moment to attack. Again, the listeners have heard me say local numeric superiority probably a billion <laughs> times right now. But... For the Brotherhood, it works as well. Like being ma making sure that even if they're not the largest, being like, okay, well, we're going to take House Dragoth, but in just small measures, take you know, 25 of them here, 25 of them there, and those those manageable heaps mm -hmm. of Quantities people. of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's smart. That's the way we got to do things. But with a force that small, one of the things that Klauswitz talks about being really important to victory is the idea of surprise. Being able to do the thing that your opponent doesn't expect and put them in a situation that they don't know that they're going into until the very last minute. With a unit that has the superiority of numbers, um, and, and again, there's been multiple military philosophers throughout the ages who have been like, this is the ideal size of an army. This is the ideal size of an army. But one of the things that we're kind of talking about here is how do you keep that element of surprise? How do you maintain that ability to, to say where, when, and who is going to be involved in a fight when you're dealing with a force that large? So there's a lot to do with like techniques and just some of the styles and flavors of fighting that we've kind of developed, like mm -hmm. fighters within the Brotherhood have developed. Um, we have a lot of like pop-up archers, so a lot of uh, folks that are hiding behind so maybe we don't pop up until, maybe you're not watching for us. You don't have you don't have arrow up or anything like that. So, um, and then we have folks like, well, I guess a big part of it is also the intimidation because you see, this big group of, you know, glaives. If I mean, if you see slab on the field with that glaive, you're gonna want to avoid it if at all possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you're paying attention to him and I'm hiding behind somebody else and then I pop up and I shoot you because you're scared of slab hmm. it worked and intimidation is also a huge part of this it can force your opponent into again being where you want them to be when you want them to be there mm -hmm. um and it's it's very good at doing it because like you said you know slam's there and it's not slam slab is there and taking a lot of the uh, attention the aggro if you will yeah Nobody noticing the archer over yonder who is now popping heads, you know, left and right. And, and that's a lot what he was talking about here too, is this idea of taking that initiative, right? Uh, making sure that we're the ones building momentum when it comes to combat. Intimidation helps us do that. Even against larger numbers, even if we're sitting there trying to intimidate a larger unit into doing what we want them to do. 
like spreading out or whatever the case may be so that we can take them in smaller portions. Right. This intimidation that you talk about is crucial for that, for sure. And not only in intimidation, but like, we're all a bunch of goofy fools. So yeah. shenanigans. We're all about heckling. <laughs> we'll heckle one unit to fight another unit and the whole field will be cleaned up. We just got to mop it up, the rest of it. Right. Um, or like, you're paying attention to Joe Mick because Joe Mick's saying something about I don't know, some joke that his daughter made that's super silly dad joke, and you're like, well, that's kind of silly. I don't expect a plunk. <laughs> yeah. Stratagems. Yeah. The things you don't expect. They come in all shapes and sizes. It's all deceit. Yeah. It? That's that's uh, the foundation. Sun Tzu says it. Machiavelli says it. Uh, Frederick said it. Everybody says it. That deceit is the foundation of warfare. Without deceit, we can't really concoct any sort of successful plan because then our opponent knows what we're going to do, which takes away the deceit aspect of it, I think. <laughs> oh. So you're, you're placing, you typically are an archer, right? You're typically doing the, the Yeah, when thing. we do like a unit battle, I feel that I'm most effective as an archer. Mm-hmm. And I want to step up and do what's most effective for my unit. So apart from, you know, popping people in the dome, are there other responsibilities that an archer needs to fill in order to be like effective on the field? So, obviously, the roles of an archer, uh, besides getting sweet headshots and sweet surprise shots that nobody's paying attention for, um, is to is to take out, um, obviously, pole arms, uh, is to take out other effective archers, um, those kind of turrets that are going to get in the way of my boys doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you're going to want to go after anybody that's making the calls, anybody uh, important with a helmet. Who's telling other people what to do, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they've got a white belt on. Um, other unit leaders. And then other people that are just kind of messing up messing up the field for my boys, you mm-hmm. know. I want to let them get in and do all the, all the dirty work. I want to get the fun shots. I want to get those fun mini-boss kills. Sure. Um, you guys are just there to, to pick off the, <laughs> the guys that are going to chase after me because I'm not going to run. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, no, like apprentice, like war master. Mm-hmm. I feel that, and and I also have to say that uh, I very much appreciate you saying that you're going after those white belts, doing my old black heart proud over here. That's right. <laughs> Goblin's got to eat. Goblin's got to eat. That's right. Well, and you're also supposed to be one of the people calling out too, right? Like it's not like you have this uh, kind of privileged position on the field where you're not engaged directly in melee. You don't have to focus directly on the person. Like you know, if Zulu, you were talking about, if he's out there and he's fighting on the line. Well, his attention needs to be straight ahead. Exactly where it is. Absolutely. Straight ahead, left, right, that's it. But I have the luxury of getting to step back a little bit and kind of observe the field from a different way. Um, So communication, obviously, is very important, especially when you get somebody... Because we got a lot of skirmishers in our game, um, especially out east. It's a huge huge, uh, tactic out there. Um, So being able to keep an eye on the peripheries, uh, field awareness, Mm -hmm. jabs, stuff like that. The basics, but um, just being able to be really clear and concise and loud and heard, which is something that I think anybody that's fought with me knows <laughs> I'm a little loud, and I know eh, it's not it's not always the best, but it always works. My boys always know when somebody's coming. And I mean, that's it is a very effective thing on the field. Like you have so you have somebody who's trying to talk. I'm like, hey guys, they're coming from the left. Like that, that's not going to do anything. Nobody's going to hear that. But if you have somebody who cuts through that. And says, yo, 
coming on the left. You need to pay attention. Like, well, I mean, you don't talk like that, but you <laughs> <laughs> I could pretend for this episode. If Y'all you... coming on the left over here. Y'all here? <laughs> Y'all, we got somebody coming up on the left. I'm going to need you to take your attention over there, please. And thank you. You sound like Angel when she gets agitated. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's a goal, though. I'd like to. I wish I was Angel. I, everybody I'd like to be her when I grow up. Yeah. She's cool people. She's cool people. But I, you know, I notice the same thing when I'm, when I'm back there shooting as well. Like you have this ability to almost be QB, right? You know, blue 52 looking off to the right there. Cause you kind of have, you have an opportunity to see, and you might not always be able to take the shot. Like there's a lot of times where I see something happening that I understand what's going on and I want to stop it. And also I've got three of my guys right in front of me. There's no way I'm going to land a shot safely enough. Um, on my opponent. So I got to let them know what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it gives us a good opportunity definitely to drive the bus as archers. However, with my tenure in the unit, I guess, gosh, I've been in the unit for a little while now. Um, but I was always a little more hesitant about leading because I was newer Mm -hmm. and I always wanted to defer to somebody with a little more experience, but I do find that, um, Often in like realm battles and certainly on practice this Sunday um, where there was a line that was kind of unsure of what actions to take and kind of uh, disjointed as a line and as a team. If you speak, people will listen. Mm -hmm. And if you have good advice, they'll notice it and they'll take it. And they'll keep listening. Yeah. No, I've noticed the same thing. It's nice to be able to be back there and again have that observation be able to keep people into it like i've i've definitely even not shooting but being kind of behind the front line be able to look around and be like wait we've got the the momentum right here the people in front are unsure but they need to know that we've got this so you you holler it out to them you're like we've got the numbers push or whatever the case may be and that's where it comes back to that morale right if Mm -hmm. if the guys in front are like oh my god i can't land a shot on this guy with the red sword with the cross uh cross guard um if the person behind them is shouting, like, listen, there's three of you and one of him, they're going to go, oh, man, I forgot. There was two other people next to me. Hmm. It's useful. Mm-hmm. It's very useful. Now, I, I, I'm not gonna, I, I, I don't think that the Brotherhood is, like, reliant on the superiority of numbers, but it's certainly a huge part of the strategy that I've noticed um, at some of the bigger events. Is it easy to become reliant on that strategy or are there ways that you've observed to be able to kind of mitigate the need to be like, okay, we need the superior of numbers, like the overall larger sense. Yeah. There's certainly like, I I guess you could say a vetting process that we go through as far as um, the skill level of fighter that Mm -hmm. we're trying to bring into the unit. And obviously we're making, you know, we're making adjustments and we're uh, starting to take non-com members as well. Um, but ultimately, we're a fighting unit, and that's that's what we'd like to be. Um, so there's, of course, a vetting process with a basic certain level of skill. Like, if you're fresh into the game, this is your first event, Brotherhood's probably not going to go, hey, you want to come and hang out and see what we're about? Sure. Um, but if you're more along the lines of three-year, five-year fighter, we might say, hey, you seem like you might be a good fit. You want to come hang out with us a little bit and see where that goes? And if it, if it gels, it gels. And if not, that's cool too. Yeah. Um, but then beyond that, throughout the whole pledge process, we spend a lot of time with our pledges, making sure that they're learning as much as possible from some of our veteran fighters and any of our brothers, really. Um, 
as well as to kind of gain a better understanding for where they are as fighters and um, what kind of potential they have, how they learn. Um, are they receptive to feedback or are they uh, stuck in their way and not really interested in uh, taking any kind of feedback like that? Because that makes it not very conducive for on the field when you're, you have somebody leading the line, driving the bus. Sure. Um, so we do a lot both before and during and after you get into the unit as far as maintaining a certain level of skill. And that's not to say that, you know, all of us are Sir Forrest out here. Um, I'll, I'll be the first to say, you know, my sword and board isn't, isn't as good as some of my brothers. Absolutely. But do I think they can get up an arch like I can? Hmm. Not so much. Not so much. Well, you, you found your niche. You know, mm-hmm. we all have a role to play on the field, a place that we're kind of called to and do the best in. And if you found your niche, you found your niche. Right. You know? Um, and I, I suppose that skill level, again, you're not just dealing with numbers against numbers. You're also dealing with people who are generally more skilled. Mm-hmm. I would say that, like you said, you go after uh, fighters who've been doing it for a minute and who've kind of established themselves and kind of maybe, like you said, made a name for themselves. And you say, okay, we're going to bring this folk in. So even though the superiority of numbers that is often enjoyed by the Brotherhood is awesome, not necessarily dependent upon it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, that's a good way to be. Because otherwise, like you said, like I, I do know some units that are horde units. You know, the reason they function is because they have a bunch of members there. There's a few of them in the southeast. And it becomes quantity over quality. Right. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that creates a very stressful, like, environment to be in to begin with. But apart from that, just the idea of trying to, like, manage that number on the field and make sure that all those numbers are on the field every single time. Right an issue <laughs> oh well desi we have kind of come to the end of our time thank you so much though for for coming on the show yeah thank you so much for having me i had a blast i'm glad and uh i'm glad that you stopped by on your little vacation out here and we hope to see you again soon absolutely all right well as for the rest of us we are now going to move on into our next segment on the french revolutionary wars We had uh, talked about the Battle of Watignes, which it was uh, ended up being a French victory, despite uh, <laughs> the predictions and kind of the way it would have looked like it going. But you had that sandwich of Coburg and that worked out. And at that time, Coburg retired from the field. He went to winter quarters. He didn't have to. There was still a decent amount of the campaign season that he could have partaken in, but uh, he didn't. And so the Northern Army of the French had a chance to retire as well. And they were able to uh, use, make more use of it than the Austrians were. Because they had that levy en masse going on, right? And so they got fresh recruits coming in constantly, getting trained, pouring in, and kind of filling out these armies. Even though the Austrians at this point still had most of Belgium by the end of this campaign up here, uh, the, the French were the ones gaining more power in terms of their army. Now, if we start to look to the east, the Prussians there have been largely inactive. They aren't doing much. They had a, an earlier victory, and 
just I really hadn't capitalized on it. They were really sitting still, not participating as much anymore. But that didn't stop the French from falling on their own swords because <laughs> they, they kind of went running in. We're talking about the Battle of Pirmesans now on the 14th of September, 1793. And the, the French, numerically speaking, again, we're, when we're dealing with the superiority, uh, the superior numbers, local numeric superiority is, is a big thing. And geometrical things are also very important. You only had about 8,000 folks that were there for Prussia, and about 12,000 for the French. So in terms of this battle, uh, numeric superiority, right? It should be going to the French. Except that they walked into prepared Prussian positions and got caught in a crossfire. So in terms of casualties, the Prussians lost about 167 to casualties. The French, 4,000. 4,000 as this wall of lead had descended upon the army. So that did not go well. The East, uh, the, even though the Prussians uh, weren't really doing much, the Eastern army had kind of defeated itself upon the Prussians. In the South, the Austrians stormed the Wissembourg lines and pushed the French forces back to Strasbourg. Now, I want to do a, a quick aside real fast. The Wissembourg lines actually pretty cool. I hadn't heard about these before, but they were constructed in the War of the Spanish Succession in 1706. And there were these earthen trench works that were kind of along this river. And of course, during the course of this war, they passed hands multiple times as forces advanced and retreated through the area. I just thought that was interesting, these, these old fortifications that still stood and were able to be used effectively by forces, you know, about a hundred years later. As my grandfather would say, they don't build them like they used to. Including, apparently, trench works. And as we've been seeing here, I think we've been noticing a theme over the past several episodes in the detailing of the way the French are running this battle, this war, in that people who fail are killed, <laughs> with the exception of a few who may have impressed the right people. Um, but just about everybody's becoming new. A lot of the old blood, a lot of the old guard, the experienced commanders, are going by the wayside, either being forced out of their position or forced off of their heads. One of the two. And so what we're seeing here, of course, is an influx more and more and more of fresh recruits. Again, you got you got the older folks that are going home. Uh, the forces wear down, get sick, die. And so you got to have new infantrymen, like new grunts, coming in all the time but also officers as well. When officers are dying as often as they have been through this particular time period, and not just from the enemy, but from our Committee of Public Safety, well, it becomes kind of hard hunting at that point. But that doesn't stop them from trying. So the, the committee, committee of Public Safety brought in some, some fresh blood, right? And these guys weren't exactly generals. They were commissars. And much like what we would think of for the Imperial Guard in Warhammer 40k, a commissar had basically God's power on earth. If they decided somebody was going to die, they just, that person was going to die. It didn't matter how high up in rank they were or what the situation was. A commissar could be like, that person dies now. And then they died now. And that was the, very much the same with what we had here. There was a young man uh, named Commissar Saint-Just, I believe, um, or Saint Just, <laughs> if you're Americanizing it. And he was from the P Committee of Public Safety. He was only 25 years old. 
and he was tasked with getting these armies off of the defensive and back to what they were supposed to be doing, which was invading Germany. At 25 years old, what was I doing? Um, not commanding a French army, that's for sure. I don't know how many of us were doing that, but uh, yeah, that's awfully young. And he was, he was absolutely all for it. Contemporaries at the time wrote that when he spoke in public, it almost sounded like the ravings of a madman because he was just so impassioned and, and full of zeal about what he was speaking of. He was very happy to be here. And one of his generals was accused of insufficient resolution in the face of the enemy. Now, we had talked uh, about the difference between boldness and resolution. And boldness, of course, is, is fairly easy, but resolution is not. And so this general, general, again, let me say, one of the old guard, gets shot in front of his troops for insufficient resolution in the face of the enemy. That's what was ordered here. And so the troops were basically, they, they understood what was happening. It was very much like, actually, when the, when the commissar kills somebody in 40K, it makes the rest of the troops think about running. They were given a choice, of course, between this commissar and the enemy. The enemy, it seems, was far more intimidating and far more scary. And so they were going to go after, well, not, not actually, weren't as scary and weren't as intimidating. So they were going to go along with what the commissar said. And he was joined by two other guys that were similarly young. You had uh, Lazare Hoche, Hoche, I'm going to say Hoche, who was only a few months older than uh, St. John or St. Just. And then you had uh, Jean-Charles Pichegru, and he was about 31 years old. So these guys are pretty young in terms of commanding larger forces. Now, people their age commanding a platoon or a company or even a battalion, that is not necessarily unheard of and wouldn't be as unusual. But putting people that young in front or in charge of large groups, large army, like an army, that's an issue. That can be an issue, as we, we saw kind of going forward here. Because these kids, and I call them kids because I'm old now, they were operating individually. Each of them was extremely ambitious. Each of them was extremely sure of themselves. They, of course, knew the proper way to conduct this war. They, of course, knew how to use their armies to start pushing back into Germany, back on the offensive for France. And all of them were very, very, very green. And so when, when you want to do something bad enough, that doesn't necessarily make it happen. All right. And they were about to find this out because they, they refused to work together for the first part of this. And so they were, they did not see early victory in their attempts. You had Hoche who was decisively defeated by the Prussians after a three day battle at Kaiserslautern and our our good friend, the Duke of Brunswick, was passed there. And of course, he was seasoned and uh, he knew how to set up his line. He anchored his flanks, the town and the river. And uh, I actually want to go, this, um, this section, this history section, this episode is going to be a little short because I wanted to do a little bit more on Kaiserslautern and also uh, Hagenau, which is where Pichegru was having issues. He fared no better against the Austrians there. And uh, both of these battles were actually decently important. I was going through and was just kind of going to gloss over them a little bit, like the Battle of the Permisson, because that one was pretty easy to understand. But these ones are a bit more complicated. Uh, for instance, Kaiserlautern is a, very much in, in like scope and importance similar to the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. So I want to make sure that I do that one justice. And the same thing with Hagenau. Both of these battles 
are extremely important to the conduct of the rest of the war. But here we see, over the course of this again, that we're having this, this change over from the veterans to the new people. And of course, this has a good benefit as well. New ideas can be explored, new ways of integrating things. Uh, different relationships can develop between officers and their men. The face of the army changes. We have a bit more control when we've got these commissars on the ground. But of course, we're losing something too. Even though these older generals and these older uh, commanders often came from noble families, perhaps had uh, famous names, they were excluded. It was often a part of what was going on. And if you look at the executions that were taking place in Paris at this time, those were the sorts of people that were getting picked up. You know, people from these older families, even the, the minor nobles, were being tried for crimes against the people, crimes against the state. And so these mistakes that we're seeing, right? Well, they're due to disobeying orders, for one, and in a big way, hastiness. Right? You've got these, these younger commanders who are fresh. Like, these guys are, are not necessarily generals. This is from the meritocracy of the public safety. These, these guys are in with those, and they were appointed. So we're not talking about seasoned generals, seasoned veterans that have seen several campaigns and can contribute that knowledge, that wisdom to what's going on on the field. What we have here are younger folks, and I am not trying to take away from, from the success and skill of younger folks when they come into a war game or into a war situation. One of my students at Hellgate, at uh, the Gladiator Club, he has just become incredible. He's just a force of nature at this point because he's been doing this for a while. He started like right after elementary school, in middle school, I'm pretty sure. That's when he started fighting fairly seriously with his friends. And of course, in high school, he came and he's a part of the Gladiator Club. And very quickly, he moved and was fighting on the Stygian field. He really was doing just about everything that we've talked about in terms of getting better as quickly and efficiently as possible. And he studied under several of us. He was not like me when I first started. I was hard-headed and I wanted to learn things my way and eventually came around to the way of doing things in a smart fashion rather than just the way that I wanted to do them. I haven't noticed that with this guy, Melon. I haven't noticed it at all. He studied under Oni, he studied under myself, he studied under uh, Turkey Feathers and Kaji and Toto and Thumbs. He has gone after everyone and he has listened to their, to their experience, to whatever techniques and tactics can be taught and he has absorbed them and he is impressive as a fighter at this point. I have to work hard to beat him, and it's not a guarantee every time. And the other veterans of the realm, it's very much the same. And so, it is, for one thing, it is wonderful, absolutely wonderful, to see somebody you've worked with achieve so much. I know that I am only a small part of that. You know, it was their effort, their willingness to go out there and, and receive the teachings and that sort of thing. They did the work. You know, Mellon did the work, but being able to be a part of that is awesome. And so in terms of being a fighter, he's very young, but he's been able to accrue a lot of experience very quickly, and he can match with the best of us. I'm, I'm eager for him to go to an event. I'd like to be there when he does, so I can see how he performs on the national field, because I have a feeling he's going to do quite well. Now, at this point, I don't think I'd put him in charge of any larger infantry base, even if he had been in training for that for years. 
he's got the temperament of a fighter, but he's also very eager. And so in terms of maybe even maybe a squad, maybe a team, maybe a platoon, I could absolutely see it. But he's only a, a few years younger than these guys. These guys who are, who are going out here and trying to lead these battles against folks. They don't, again, the, the season, no, don't get me wrong. Season generals can also be bullheaded, put their heads in the sand. You've got, you've got greats that are out there, and you've also got ones that are Burnside. I mean, terrible. And so I'm not saying that every old general is correct. Just because it's the way it was done doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. So there is a good thing for this. And of course, when it comes to Mellon, he is revitalizing a lot of us veterans in the realm. Because we don't want to be shown up by this young guy. You know, we don't want somebody who's younger than our fighting careers ugh, to beat us consistently. And so we're having to up our game, too. We're having to, you know, put a little bit more effort into it. And I like that. I like the fact that we have somebody to push us here. And even and, and I think it's going to make us all better in terms of the Nationals, too. This kind of increase in ability, you can't go wrong with it. You can't go wrong with it. So again, when we're looking at the young, in terms of the recruits, in terms of the officers, I'm not judging them because they're young. It's the experience issue. And you can see this with the troops. Now, some of this, of course, is training. You've got this, this levy en masse, which is basically running them through, okay, here's your rifle, here's your bayonet, here's how to load it, good luck. You know, it's not an intensive, you know, year-long training in order to do this. It's very quick. Get them in, get them out, get them to the front lines. And they're eager. Of course, a lot of these guys are willing and very eager to be there because they believe in the ideals of the revolution. They are all about defending the homeland. Of course, the propaganda has just been fantastic, and so they're, they're ready to be there. But they're not experienced at doing so, and the discipline just isn't there. And it results in defeats like we're about to see. Now, spoiler alert, they all come together afterwards, these three these three hot-headed new commanders, they do eventually kind of come together and they're like, okay, we do need to learn how to work together. We're not doing well on our own. And so they absolutely learn from their mistake and, and come about and recover from it in a, in a fantastic fashion, in a way that was extremely useful <laughs> or the way to, way to go about it. So, that, yeah, again, that's a little bit of a, little bit of a spoiler for next time. But, uh, yeah, I, th I think I've kind of, Talk. And, and then the, yeah, I was just so, the Wissenborg lines. Next time I go to, to that area of the world, I want to stop by and see those if they're still around. That sounds really cool. So today we've talked about a, a couple of different concepts, and, and especially when it comes to the idea of perseverance, superiority in numbers, and surprise. The surprise being one of the contributing factors here. As we saw at the Battle of Pirmesons, surprise was everything. The French didn't know what they were walking into, and so when it, when it came time for the firing to start, there were angles that the French simply could not match, and through the sheer power of geometry, local numeric superiority was achieved. So that element of surprise, that stratagem, that was almost unwittingly played by the Prussians, and managed to, to work out that good fortune that we had talked about. And it will be the perseverance of our young com commanders, St. Juice, Hoche, and Pichagru, that we'll see them through and we'll continue our story next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.